The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. God raises the poor from the dust, lifts up the needy from the garbage pile. God sits them with the leaders, gives them the seat of honor. The pillars of the earth belong to the Lord. God set the world on top of them. God guards the feet of God's faithful ones. The wicked die in darkness because no one succeeds by strength alone. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Micah Belong, the wise old Lama NB, joined today by the wonderful Spencer and my good friend, Ronnie. Now, it is Ronnie's first time on the show. Ronnie is one of my dear friends. Uh, we played in the podcast that inspired me to eventually make another podcast and ask someone smarter than me at podcasting to do it, which is why you're getting this wonderful podcast produced by the amazing Ephemeral instead of a piece of shit by me. They are the pastor of Chosen Family Church, which is an online congregation. Ronnie, could you tell me a little bit more about that and how you found your way on your journey and where you find yourself now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Ronnie. I use any and all pronouns. I, this year, became the pastor of Chosen Family Church, uh, which is an incredible online community. We are a queer and neurodivergent-friendly church founded by and for queer, neurodivergent, disabled people. And it was put together by the incredible Jeff Baker. They have really poured their heart and soul into this community for years. And I ended up joining up with the congregation at a time when I really needed a progressive spiritual presence to nurture me as I had been through my own exciting stuff. And then when it was time for Jeff to transition, we had to talk and they generously asked me to pray about uh, taking leadership at CFC. And I am still very much a baby bird flying and, and crashing frequently when it comes to figuring out how to run a, a e-church specifically. But the congregation is a group of incredible people, and uh, they're very, very gentle with me. In a broader sense, I was raised in a pretty conservative evangelical church, spent my whole life in it, accepted a call to ministry when I was 17, got married, Two kids later found out that I was demisexual. Then that caused me to start looking at the sort of implicit, ever unquestioned views of my church about LGBTQ and gender identity. The short version is I was already feeling like God was taking me in a very different direction. And then 2020 happened and quarantine made me so freaking gay. Um, <laughs> I now identify as demisexual, gender fluid, bisexual, and polyamorous. My life looks very different than it did when I was uh, working in the Nazarene church. But gosh, it's so much better too. I am uh, so much freer, so much happier. I live with so much less 
internalized guilt and shame. And I get to discover new things about Jesus every day. And that's the best part. That reminds me of a, a song that I think our dear friend, Jeff Baker, uh, who is also one of my favorite people in the world, wrote um, that goes something like, God is so fucking gay. <laughs> and uh, yes. I just I just want to put that into the ether. So, <laughs> and thank you for being a, a part of this podcast. Chosen Family Church is one of the sibling congregations of the alternative church that I started on Discord uh, called uh, the Llama Pack, which you can go and join as well if you feel like you were left out of the sheepfold. And so Chosen Family Church, the Llama Pack, both great places to be. If you want a sermon that is just so gentle and loving and also can pierce into the depths of your soul, you should go and listen to Ronnie preach. Anyway, I'll leave it at that, and we'll go ahead and dive on in to what the Bible has to say. Genesis eleven ten through twelve twenty. These are Shem's descendants. When Shem was a hundred years old, he became the father of Arpachshad. Two years after the flood, after Arpachshad was born, Shem lived five hundred years. He had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad was thirty-five years old, he became the father of Shelah. After Shelah was born, Arpachshad lived four hundred and three years. He had other sons and daughters. When Shelah was thirty years old, he became the father of Eber. After Eber was born, Shelah lived 403 years. He had other sons and daughters. When Eber was 34 years old, he became the father of Peleg. After Peleg was born, Eber lived 430 years. He had other sons and daughters. When Peleg was 30 years old, he became the father of Reu. After Reu was born, Peleg lived 209 years. He had other sons and daughters. When Reu was 32 years old, he became the fathers of Serug. After Serug was born, Reu lived 207 years. He had other sons and daughters. When Sarag was thirty years old, he became the father of Nahor. After Nahor was born, Sarag lived two hundred years. He had other sons and daughters. When Nahor was twenty-nine years old, he became the father of Terah. After Terah was born, Nahor lived a hundred and nineteen years. He had other sons and daughters. When Terah was seventy years old, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are Terah's descendants. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died while with his father Terah in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor both married. Abram's wife was Sarai, and Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was unable to have children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his son Abram's wife, Sarai, his daughter-in-law. They left Ur of the Chaldeans for the land of Canaan, and arriving at Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you. Those who curse you I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Abram left just as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old when he left Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all of their possessions, and those who became members of their household in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled to the land as far as the sacred place at Shechem, at the oak of Morah. The Canaanites lived in the land at that time. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I give this land to your descendants. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. From there he traveled toward the mountains east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and worshipped in the Lord's name. Then Abram set out toward the arid southern plain. 
making and breaking camp as he went. When a famine struck the land, Abram went down toward Egypt to live as an immigrant, since the famine was so severe in the land. Just before he arrived in Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know you are a good-looking woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me but let you live. So tell them you are my sister, so that they will treat me well for your sake, and I will survive because of you. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw how beautiful his wife was. When Pharaoh's princes saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's household. Things went well for Abram because of her. He acquired flocks, cattle, male donkeys, men servants, women servants, female donkeys, and camels. Then the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, What's this you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, She's my sister, so that I made her my wife? Now here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning Abram, and they expelled him with his wife and everything he had. So this is a weird passage, right? First off, starting with this strange uh, introduction with the family. Earlier in the story, we saw this person named Peleg, right? And what was Peleg's name? He was called Peleg because the earth was divided, right, at that time of his birth. And here in this story, we have Peleg again, who is serving as this intermediary figure. There are nine generations listed here, and Peleg is the divider. He is the fifth one mentioned that then goes into the family of Abram. And so it's interesting here that this myth includes this sort of filler character, this person whose name we don't know, who's just there as a literary figure to divide these people. And also a little bit weird, Terah had Abram when he was 70 years old. <laughs> so why is it that Abram will later on think it's so weird when he becomes a father at 90 years old? We'll get more into that in later episodes. Going back to just the, the genealogy itself, I did hear at one point in my studies the way ancient cultures passed stories and passed history because it was all verbal. Genealogies were really important because that was both a, a significant timekeeper and also a proof that this was a real person. And I try to remember that whenever I get lost in, a, in any scriptures, like eight pages of names that are hard to pronounce. Because like, <laughs> that isn't important to me, Ronnie, living in 2023, but it is absolutely vital to the oral tradition from which these texts were created. And it meant something to the people who would have been sitting around a fire sharing the stories of their people. And that sort of difference of culture is something that's really important, especially when we look at verse 3, God making their blessing over Abram. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Here we have this, the, the way that Hebrew rhymes with itself. In English, we rhyme things by, has green eggs and ham, will you eat them, Sam I am? And in Hebrew, rather than rhyming because of the end sounds of words sounding similar, in Hebrew, the rhyming happens by repeating or augmenting or disagreeing with the previous statement that's made in this bit of poetry. And so, I will bless those who bless you. Well, how do you make that even more extreme? You say the opposite as well. Those who curse you, I will curse, right? And so, it's not just a blessing. It's also doom on your enemies. And then taking it even further, all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. So, it's not just a blessing that is directly toward Abram. It's also a curse on the people who would go against them and a blessing for the whole world, 
right? And so it's an interesting dynamic here that this central blessing is the beginning of God's relationship with the people of Israel. In Jewish theology, the covenant that was made with Noah is for all people, right? As long as you don't murder people, and as long as you don't eat the blood of animals, then you're fine. You're good with God, right? And here is a special covenant that begins to be made, a special covenant that isn't just special to Abram, but is universalistic, right? And that I, as a Christian, believe is ultimately results in the redemption of the entire world. We're going to read about Abram being an asshole. He's not a good person, right? And yet he is counted as righteous because of God's goodness rather than his goodness. And that sounds theology-y and nerdy and whatnot. We're going to see the way that he is just a terrible person in this story and then in a bunch of other stories, and yet God chose him anyway. In evangelical traditions, especially those that preach really hard about salvation by grace through faith, but tend to have pretty legalistic codes of conduct, I think that we don't necessarily dwell on how profound what you just said is, because we will talk about all of the flaws of the various people in the Bible. So, you know, you'll hear things like, yeah, well, David was a murderer, and yet he became the man after God's own heart. And the way it is implied, the the thing that is that you're supposed to take out of it was, it doesn't matter what bad stuff you did past tense, because God is going to fix that, and now you can be a perfect, sinless creature who never screws up again. And I don't think that's a faithful reading of the Old Testament, and I especially don't think that's a faithful reading of Abram's life. Abram doesn't just start out as a bad person. Abram is pretty much a dick until the day he dies. He does some good things, too. He is a flawed person who contains multitudes, but there are flaws that are significant, that are enough that they would get anyone who called themselves a person of faith in the 21st century loudly censured, (laughs) shall we say. And those keep happening until the day Abram is put in the grave. And I think it's really powerful to say, yeah, this was before God told Abram any kind of behavior things, any kind of this is what you have to do for me besides leave. And as long as you do that, I'm going to do this. And just to remember that God is good and it actually kind of doesn't matter how much we suck. I think one of the biggest critiques of universalism in Christianity, right? Universalism is the doctrine that everyone is redeemed, that God's love is so great that no one gets left outside. And I think the most powerful critique of that is that horrible people end up getting redeemed, right? That horrible people end up within God's love. But I think that when you look at the Bible, it's just horrible people. Like, <laughs> most of these people that we read about are not good people, and yet God uses them to bring about salvation of all people. And to me, that speaks to the fact that none of us have to be perfect. None of us have to be ideologically pure. None of us have to be, you know, have the exact right ideology and do the exact right actions, right? There are a plethora of methods that we can use to bring about a better world, and God will use all of us to do it. That's also a great challenge, right? Because that means even the theologians that I want to tear my hair out every time they speak, I I have to believe God can use them too. 
even though I think they're wrong. We're speaking from a leftist perspective. One of the most persuasive parts of leftism and and liberationism that got to me uh, as a young adult figuring out my own political leanings was, hey, you right-wingers keep complaining, well, yeah, if if you make this free, then even the people you don't like will get it too. You'd be like, yeah, that's actually kind of the point. <laughs> we don't just want a better world for us. We want a better world for you, even if you're a jerk. <laughs> I love that meme of the leftist talking to, you know, somebody in a mega hat and they're like, "Yes, I want universal healthcare for you too." And the other person is just freaking out because like it's totally unreasonable that you would want something good for another human being, which is it's just bizarre, right? Like why wouldn't I want everyone to live in a world where you aren't depressed by hierarchy, where you don't have your humanity sucked away from you by systems of oppression? Like why wouldn't I want to build that world with you? Even if I disagree with you on everything else, why wouldn't I want your well-being? Careful. You might just start showing the love of God here up in the podcast, Micah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what'll happen? In uh, verse two there, where the Lord says to Abram, I will make your name respected. I've got the Reina Valera translation in front of me here. Excuse my translation from Spanish into English. I, I just love the phrase it uses here says, I will make your name big. It's <laughs> a literal translation of what it says in, in the Spanish there. I, I love that. They're going to be using all caps for you, baby. <laughs> all caps, exactly. <laughs> and it's a good contrast to the last episode, to the last story here about the, the people building the Tower of Babel, where they say, let's make ourselves a name. There's kind of a difference there where you've got these people, they're trying to make themselves up to be great. And the complete opposite end of the spectrum, we've got the Lord and Abram here. It's like, hey, I'm going to come in. I'm making you great. Heck, man. And that right there, that right there is why you can't read any story in the Bible in a vacuum. That's why the context is so important, because that's such beautiful poetry that you just brought up. And honestly, a thing that I had never even thought of because we put these little neat dividers between all of the stories, like it's not one giant book telling one story. This goes back to the fact that I talk about the Bible all the time as fan fiction, right? This is authors who are reading other stories in their tradition and riffing off of it, right? And including them with each other. And like, you see that the way that all of these stories rhyme in that way in Hebrew, you see in the Tower of Babel, this, we will make our name great versus here, I will make your name great. And this has me going on a totally different tangent. I've talked before about the fact that I love the podcast Cool People Who Did Cool Things by Margaret Kiljoy. Every episode is just incredible. It goes on a deep dive of some awesome person who's a little bit obscure who helped make the world a little bit better. And most of the time, those people are not purely good people, right? They are circumstances of their context who navigate it in a way that is probably something we should aspire to as a complicated figure that all of us make these complicated moral decisions. But the thing that strikes me about that show is that for every episode you have on any leftist individual, there are a thousand good people who work to make the world a better place, whose names we will not know until we're up in heaven hanging out with them, right? Until we have come back and remade the world in the image of the way that they work to make it. 
all of these people whose names are not made great and yet who do the little work and be a blessing to the rest of us is so much more important than getting our names in a history book. Abraham is in this book mostly because he's a dick and God uses him anyway. (laughs) And some of us don't get in the history book, but we're doing what God wants anyway. The best and worst thing about being famous is everything about who you are gets exaggerated and your your wins are so big but also your losses are and the ways that you screw up again it's it's just something that i don't think we think about when we sort of approach narrative from a from a surface value especially a narrative like the bible in the way that it is traditionally read because we we have unfortunately flattened these human beings into sort of Aesop's fables, vice and virtue paragons, <laughs> instead of seeing them as they were, as, as humans who were trying to live in a complex world just like we are, and sometimes got it very, very wrong. And yet God did good and beautiful things through both the named and the nameless. Speaking of the named, let's talk about one of these names that we see popping up here again. If you go back to our episode about Noah and his nakedness, right? we remember who Canaan is. Canaan is the random child of the person who somehow did Noah wrong, and Canaan is the one who ends up getting cursed. right? And that story justifies the oppression of Canaan by the kingdom of Israel for the rest of time. That story is set up here and comes back here. It rhymes here, where Abram comes into Canaan. He's living in this holy place. He's living here among already existing people. It says in verse 6, the Canaanites lived in the land at that time. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I give this land to your descendants. It's not, I will give your land to this descendants. It's not, you can earn this land. It's, I give this land to your descendants. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Right there, is a settler in a settled world, right? Where we are seeing a doctrine of imperialism built up that justifies the oppression of most of the world by the European powers. Because they look at this and they say, God gave Canaan to the Israelites, so God must have given us all the world too. Yeah, even even for the ancient Israelites, they, they used this to justify what it was, at least in their own description, a genocide. The whole book of Joshua, right, is the people of Israel justifying this oppression. Now, from an archaeological standpoint, I I always wish that we had L or Snorkel every time I start talking about the archaeological standpoint. But (laughs) from an archaeological standpoint, the people of Israel probably are a band of, of people who organize themselves in a political manifestation from the Canaanite people. Like, these are not outsiders. These are insiders who are having a disagreement with other people of their own culture. Like, El and Yahweh are gods that exist within the ancient Near Eastern pantheon outside of Israel. That's how we know about what El and Yahweh were before they end up evolving into the modern understanding of God. And so Israel is interacting with these other folks, and yet they justify why they get oppressed later, because they didn't adequately oppress others in the first place. And it's bizarre to me that this is the interpretation that we take. It's not bizarre. It's upsetting. It's frustrating. (laughs) 
<laughs> that we see this theme throughout much of the Bible that justifies this imperialism rather than standing up with the Canaanites against the oppression that ends up coming against them. Right now, I keep getting embroiled in these arguments where people want to say, oh, well, that other leftist group is going to kill me after the revolution. Girl, if we don't work together, how are we ever going to get the revolution in the first place, right? Instead, we are divided from each other, just like capitalism divides us by gender, just like capitalism divides us by race, just like it divides us by class, just like it divides us by ideology and sexuality. It divides us by our political tendencies so that we don't work with the people with whom we agree on 90, 95% of issues because we are more concerned with what is rightfully ours, what our rightful inheritance as the descendants of some leftist group who did one great thing a long time ago, and so we think that it should work for us too. If we're trying to be scientific leftists, we learn from the past and we adjust our behavior so that we don't end up imperializing each other, but instead standing together against the powers that come to oppress us. Abram's story, Abram and Sarah visit Egypt, this happens two times, and the exact same thing happens in both situations. Abram says, let's, let's pretend you're my sister, and Sarah goes to be a part of the pharaoh's harem and then everybody in pharaoh's household suffers because of it and then the pharaoh sends abram and his wife on his way in the second one abram pulls the shittiest junior high well technically i've ever heard in my life and goes well technically she is my sister cuz you know she was she was my half-sister, and then we got married. And so it is fascinating to me, both the significance of this first time and knowing that either it did chronologically happen twice or because of the way repetition is, you know, a part of emphasis and, and poetry in Hebrew writing, someone thought it was significant enough that it needed to be repeated later in the story. Yeah, in this this story, kind of the Bible is fan fiction, or as I like to say it sometimes, Bible is Israelite propaganda. There's <laughs> hardly anything that just happens in this story that doesn't happen in another story with Abraham. Like you said, there's there's a whole other story of Abraham doing the same thing. And yet again, there's a story of Isaac doing the same thing later on too. And like this this entire story, you can find the exact same events in in other stories interesting how the, the authors pieced it together. And part of that has to do with, I mean, the way women were viewed in that time and that culture, which sucks. And part of it has to do with the way that, you know, alliances were forged between tribes and between nations during this time in history. And part of it just has to do with these being bad people. <laughs> It is interesting to me just knowing how in the rest of scripture, Pharaoh is very much going to be a figure who the fate of the Israelites hangs in the balance of what the Pharaoh is doing from, you know, Exodus all the way down to when the Israelites go into exile because Egypt is always a major player. 
in those ancient Near Eastern events. And very often for the people of Israel, Pharaoh is the bad guy. But in this story, I kind of feel bad for the dude. Taking off our our Bible scholar hats for a second and just putting on our consumer of media hats, this guy who has the the right as the, the ruler to propose to any woman who lives in his land, sees a hot lady, asks, hey, is she married? And everyone's like, no, no, her brother's right there. He goes, hey, can I marry your hot sister? I'll like make sure you are living the good life. I just, I just think she's gorgeous and I want her in my life. And then just has the worst few months ever. He didn't do anything wrong, right? <laughs> he wasn't trying to steal this man's spouse. He wasn't trying to take advantage of a woman outside of the ways that women were just sort of taken advantage of by default in the culture. He just wanted a hot wife. And then his life got made miserable because he was deceived. And can we talk about the fact that Sarai is 65 years old in this story and still smoking hot? Like, Just the old lady. <laughs> the Pharaoh is not the bad guy here. Like, <laughs> the Pharaoh is the person who acts the most respectfully, other than Sarai, who is just the victim here. And that's an interesting point, because you keep talking about how Sarai acts, but I just want to be very clear here. Sarai never acts in yes. this passage. Sarai does not speak. Sarai has no voice. We have no idea whether or not she consented to this. She may have. She also may not have. But it wasn't important to the story, and that's even worse. I think there's also something to be said for going back to the very point we made right at the beginning, which is that God's grace and God's redemptive plan take place even when we kind of suck. Because I think the interpretation you have is an extremely fair and valid one, and I, I definitely think there are other places in Scripture that corroborate that on a more explicit basis, right? Especially in the, in the situation of exploited women. But in this case, the thing that I pick up on immediately is Abram has literally just met this God, just agreed to be this God's chosen. And yet, as soon as Abram goes into a new place, he's like, oh, I better, I better whore out my wife so I don't get killed. He literally just got this promise that he's going to be a blessing and have a great name. And yet he can't be bothered to trust that for the amount of time it's going to take him to travel through Egypt. And yet the Pharaoh is the one who is punished and Abram is the one who gets out not only with his wife, but with all the loot that he got from lying because Abram does a, just a a wholly bad thing. There is nothing good about what Abram did. And yet in this moment, God still takes care of Abram, not because he deserves it, not because he earned it, but because 
the Lord already promised. Sorry, to me, that's a less comfortable interpretation because uh, there's a lot of gross people who don't face repercussions in the world, right? And it's really hard to see that in Scripture and see God being a part of that. This sort of ideology is what justifies so many con artists today, right? Like all of these people who preach a prosperity gospel, they're looking at this and they're saying, you know, maybe they don't even think that Abram did anything wrong. They look at the exploitation that Abram brings upon the person he's supposed to love most in the world, and yet he benefits from it, right? And so this feeds into the capitalist interpretation, right? I can screw over whoever I want to, and I'll still end up good in the end. I'll end up richer because I've screwed over these people that I care about, right? Or worse yet, screw over the people I don't care about in any way. This is capitalist ideology right here. You go and do something terrible, and you end up benefiting from it, and there's no consequence. And so I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I don't like that interpretation because it, it is used in our society so much to justify so many of the evils we face. I think it can definitely be used that way. I think that it is important to acknowledge it in the text, though, and to sit in that discomfort because while it does get used in destructive ways, there is also the truth that, you know what? God has been good to me. God has let me get away scot-free from some situations I definitely should have paid consequences for. And were they on the level of exploiting my spouse for financial gain? No, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> But they were absolutely things that were not okay, things that haunt me to this day. And I think it is important for us to sit with the reality that sometimes God doesn't bless the most moral of us, not so that that can be utilized, not so that we can look at someone doing something terrible and going, well, maybe that's just God's will for their life. But instead, to recognize that a person who is doing their best and still sucks sometimes isn't beyond the reach of the wonderful redemption of God, a thing that we believe, but it's really hard it's, it's really hard to look at the ugliness when it happens and go, yep, we believe that. To go along with that, it's important to note that in this story, God already acted. God already blessed them, right? And what does Abram immediately do? There's a famine, and so Abram fucks off. Like, <laughs> Abram is told, this is the land you're going to, all your descendants are going to live in. And he runs away because he doesn't trust God's goodness to actually be there. And then he goes and sets up the scenario where he's paranoid that his wife is going to get him killed, and so he invents the situation so that he can steal more money. All throughout this story, God is not acting. God is yeah. not the one who's acting when things went well for Abram because of her, right? Pharaoh's acting. Pharaoh gives him all of these things as a dowry, right? But God is not present here. There is no God blessing Abram in this scenario. The only thing that God does is curses those who curse Abram. God is not blessing Abram. He's just cursing Pharaoh, fulfilling that promise he makes in verse 3. 
To say that there are no consequences for Abram uh, misses the entirety of the rest of Abram's marriage. Yeah. <laughs> for, for, again, we're doing a lot of foreshadowing today, but like Abram and Sarai are married for a very long time and go through a lot together. I would not call their marriage happy. I would not call it good. And to be a hundred percent clear, I would also not call Sarai a good person. We are accurately portraying Sarai in this specific passage as the victim. But I believe the next uh, episode I'm scheduled to be on, stay tuned listeners, is to do with Sarai's treatment of Hagar. And that is absolutely a situation where Sarai is not only participating in, but actively spearheading the exploitation of another woman. And so, again, that that is not to say that it doesn't matter that she's victimized here. It absolutely does. Anytime a person is exploited, it is bad. It is instead to recognize that there, nobody except weirdly for Pharaoh, <laughs> comes out of this situation smelling like a rose. And, and I just, I, I don't like Sarai. Welcome, welcome to hot, hot Bible takes. I don't like Sarai slash Sarah as a Bible character. She annoys me. But I think <laughs> that in this very specific context, I think that recognizing uh, the, the validity of the phrase, a product of their time, has some merit. Because yes, Sarai was absolutely victimized in this story. And later, Sarai absolutely victimizes another woman. Neither of these situations are are unique or are outside the cultural norm of the day. And that doesn't make it right, but it does make what is happening less a malicious act of intentional cruelty and more a participating in the systemic evil prevalent in the society they were in. Well, and it goes back to the fact that this, again, rhymes with our story of Noah, right? Where Noah is a victim, but he makes someone else the victim as well. Instead of actually going and addressing the issue that he has with the person who causes it, he instead lashes out at this third party. And so Sarai, again, is a victim who victimizes other people. And so how do we stop that cycle? We have to realize solidarity that we have with other people. And and also I want to push back on the idea that Pharaoh is the one who comes away here. An ancient Israelite reader would see Pharaoh and instantly recoil. So, (laughs) like, Pharaoh is not, he is literally the top of the pyramid scheme, right? Like, Pharaohs are not good people. They have all of these excess things because they've stolen the surplus of the people. And this would not be lost on an ancient audience in any way. So, really, there's no one who's not who's not a bad person in this story, unfortunately. Sarai is the clear victim in this circumstance, but she goes on to be the victimizer in later circumstances. And so this is a reminder that we have to work to resist that sort of passing on of oppression that we face every day. I just wanted to compare Abram here, uh, compare him to, to Peter, actually. So Abram here, I guess to speak in his defense of it, this famine hits like, he doesn't have any food. He doesn't know what to do. So he's kind of relying on himself to figure out what to do. He goes down to Egypt. He leaves the promised land. And we've already gone over it. He does a terrible thing to Sarai. And he does some bad things. And throughout the story of Abram, there's more bad things, a couple of good things. 
not a perfect character by any metric. The gods still make something great out of him. Now, Peter, in a in a similar way, right after Christ is taken, he's you could say he's also relying on himself. Like, how do I get out of here? How do I keep myself alive? Same thought as Abram. He's asked, like, do you have anything to do with this Jesus guy? He's like, no, I, I don't know him. And depending on how you look at that, it's either much less of a crime or much more of a crime of what Abram did here when Peter denied Christ. Both Abram and, and Peter, they're not relying on on the promises that the Lord had made to them. They're kind of figuring stuff out on their own and it doesn't doesn't go great, but I guess the Lord figures it out for them. They end up with blessings promised to them. You are pinpointing how this pattern of people doing awful things and that not stopping them from growing and changing later or them from becoming used in a powerful and good way by God, how that continues thousands of years down the line. That this isn't just the story of the Tanakh. This isn't just the story of the New Testament. This is this is who God is and how God behaves redemptively by having the audacity to take the most goblin-esque people and go, yes, this one, this one's going to be in the spotlight. I love that connection that you're making here because I've been sitting here in outrage and anger about Abram being a dick and That's causing me to remember the fact that most of us, when we read these Bible stories, we see ourselves as the good guy. We put ourselves in the story and we say, I'm the person who's doing the right thing, right? I'm the person who's facing the oppression. I'm the person who is escaping out of Egypt. I'm the person who's doing these things. And you've reminded us, Spencer, that oftentimes we need to read these stories as the bad guy. (laughs) We need to read our own stubbornness. We need to read our own failures. We need to read our own moments of not knowing what to do next and making bad decisions, right? And so thank you for reminding us (laughs) of that, that I have certainly been in scenarios where I didn't need to make the dramatic move that I did because I was scared. And I ended up doing things that hurt people around me because of my fear of a circumstance that didn't even exist. And so even while I say Abram is a terrible person, I need to remember, oh wait, but I've been in Abram's shoes. (laughs) I have felt like a refugee in need of running away. And that's part of the reason that, that Ronnie and I have created these alternative churches where people get to be refugees and run away, right? Because we needed a space where we could make mistakes and love each other anyway. And so I'm stuck here in this position of being angry at Abram Maybe more so because I'm angry at myself for those sorts of mistakes. And if I'm going to learn a lesson from this text, I have to forgive Abram at least a little bit so that I can forgive myself and get to what this text is supposed to be teaching me. I think it's really important to hold, not even intention, just hold together because they are both equally important Abraham and Sarai were terrible people. And also, Abram and Sarai were beloved children of God, chosen by God's self to be a blessing and part of the redemption story of all of humanity. And those are both true. And that's hard. We don't, we don't want 
both of those things to be true. <laughs> I think I don't want both of those things to be true. I want my heroes to be very clean cut and easy to understand, but people aren't like that. And the story of redemption isn't like that. And I think that's even better because when I'm complicated, I, I know that I still have a place in that story. So much easier to make other people even like make ourselves out to be caricatures, just like one dimensional characters. You're either a good guy, or you're a bad guy. You take your, your label and you're, you're set with it. The main lesson that has come out to me the more and more I read into scripture is that no one is a one-sided person. No one's just good. No one's just bad. And I guess that I, I have to read that into myself as well. Like I'm not just a, a good person. I'm not God's perfect soldier or whatever you would stereotype caricature you want to put there. I am an imperfect person. And I need to accept that for myself. I need to accept that for everyone else and continue to go on and, and love people as Christ would have me of them. And I guess, again, to speak in defense of, of Abram and Sarai here, these, these people lived a very, very long lives. And I, I can imagine that what we have written in the Bible about them is a very, very minuscule fraction of, of what they did. I yeah, to, to judge them as, as good or bad out of that, I think is absolutely impossible. You know, I really liked a thing that you said earlier, Spencer, and I, I want to touch back on it a little bit. You, you were talking about how Abraham did what he thought he had to do to survive, right? And what Abram does in the world that he lives in is lie to the political leader about his marital status so that he will survive and be financially well off. And that is unfortunately way closer to home for the lives of a lot of people in 21st century Western world than we want to admit. When I see a story like, let's pretend you're my sister so that we don't die, and so that it goes well for us financially, I think of the stories I have heard today of disabled people who have gotten a divorce from the person that they love and want to spend the rest of their lives with. But because of the way disability benefits work in America, they will better survive as a divorced couple living together than they would as married because otherwise the disabled person cannot get the support that they desperately need. And that is far from the only example of the ways that our own society and the systems that we live with every day tear down loving relationships like marriage and and the ways that people have to do problematic or downright awful things just to just to survive and be okay. We may not be in a situation that maps perfectly onto this story, but there are countless people who are making hard and morally cloudy choices every day because the alternative is 
we just we just die. We just don't get food. We just don't get to have the things that we need to exist in the world. I was a missionary in Honduras for a few years, and the number of people that I met who had stories of trying to illegally cross into the United States to find a better life. It breaks my heart even to this day to, to think about it. And from their stories, just the, when you're, you're stuck between your, your morals and living another day, it's, I, I can't imagine myself in, in that situation. And I'll, I'll take, take this moment here, take my, my soapbox, the, take that anarchist communist moment to say we really need to make it easier to get to somewhere better so people aren't put up to this these situations like abram was here like people are nowadays trying to get somewhere better and having to choose between their morals and their life and this whole conversation is a healthy reminder that the system causes us to do things that are not right all the time it is a system of sin and death for a reason, right? It is a system that causes us to hurt the people that we love. It is a system that causes us to oppress others, to make it so I can't enjoy a chocolate bar without knowing that there was some slave labor involved in it getting to me. You know, th- there's all of these systems that are set up to screw us over. And we can criticize Abram for participating in this, but then also have to look at the fact that we are also involved in these systems until we work to overthrow them. And yet you also participate in society. I am very intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Ronnie and Spencer, for participating in this conversation. And thank you, dear listener, for continuing to tune in. We so appreciate you, and especially our comrades who have come on board as patrons. Uh, You might notice that the sound quality of this is just getting better and better. Uh, Maybe not this episode, because I am currently sick as a dog. Uh, But... Uh, But that is all because of your generous donations. We so appreciate each and every one of you. Now, Pastor Micah, take it away. If you're interested in discussing this episode, religion, or general leftism, please join our Discord channel found in the show notes. We host a Bible study every Friday at 12-ish p.m. Eastern Time to discuss this week's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the word in black and red. Your support helps me pay our amazing editor and relieves my guilty conscience of exploiting someone's free labor. If you would like to appear on the show or reach us for any reason, you can reach us at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Thank you, past Micah. Now go, as beautiful and complicated people, to overthrow the pharaohs that put us in these situations in the first place. Shalom. God is so fucking gay.